Hey, hey, and welcome, folks. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Yeah, it's a Sunday. But you know what we've decided to start doing on Sundays? We're going to drop you a little bit of mailbag wisdom. So we're going to answer the questions we receive throughout the week from you. Now, you have to be a subscriber in order to have those questions answered, which is why you should go subscribe right now at dailywireplus.com. Maybe your question will be the next one I answer. Corey says, Ben, I live in Washington State, where the legislature has recently passed bills allowing gender-affirming care of minors without parental consent. I'm bothered that the Washington House and Senate Republicans don't point out the horrible truth of what's actually happening, such as the sterilization and removal of healthy body parts of minors, as Matt Walsh does. Instead, they use the left euphemism of gender-affirming care. It seems to me they're losing the debate before it begins by allowing the truth to be obfuscated. Is there any strategic reason for Republicans to speak the gender-affirming language? Not one iota of a reason. The left is so fond of euphemisms. It's euphemism after euphemism. And gender-affirming care? replaces the just as euphemistic sex change surgery because you can't actually change your sex. And so it's euphemism upon euphemism. It started off with sex change surgery. Then it was hormone replacement therapy. Now it's gender affirming care. Again, all of this is euphemism. What it should be is sex denying treatment because that's what it is. You're denying your own actual biological sex by altering your body and your hormones. That is what you're doing. The right should never give on, on this point. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. We do the same thing with abortion, by the way, the right. We even, even the term abortion or termination of a pregnancy, it is the killing of the unborn. That is what you are doing. And you can make the argument as to what the status of the unborn is at any given point, but the idea that you're not killing the thing that is unborn is obviously untrue. That is the thing that is happening. Jeremy says, what do you think the U.S. could do to win back the trust of its allies? Also, assuming France truly decides to become politically non-aligned and move away from the United States, what do you think are the chances of France becoming an independent superpower? A very, very low. France does not have the ability to become an independent superpower. Now, France has the most durability of any other country on the continent. It's, it's like Germany and France are the two most durable countries on the continent of Europe, mainly because the reproduction rate in France is um, is actually fairly decent. Like they're still reproducing at a, at a kind of normal rate. They're, they're like 1.9 births per woman, which is fairly high by, by sort of Western standards, even though it's below replacement rates. Right now, Germany's at like 1.6. The United States is kind of around the, the German number. We're, we're like 1.8, 1.782, so somewhere in there. Um, so France is the healthiest in terms of demographics. They're also importing a huge young population from Northern Africa, right? the big Moroccan population coming in, Libyan population coming into to France as well. Their economy doesn't allow them to really grow at extraordinarily rapid rates. They do obviously have nuclear weapons, the French, and they have a, a not insignificant military. But the idea they're ever an independent sort of power is wrong. The idea of, a, of an aligned Europe that acts as a counterweight to both the United States and China has long been a European dream, but they, they seem unwilling to actually pay the freight for that. Craig says, Ben, I want to ask about two groups of voters when comparing the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. In 2016, Trump won almost 63 million votes. In 2020, he won 74.25 million votes. Where did the 11.25 million votes come from for Trump, who got mobilized? On the flip side, Hillary won about 65 million votes in 2016. Biden won about 81.25 million new votes in 2020. Do you think media manipulation and hatred of Hillary explains the 16 million new votes that went to Biden? That seems like far too high a number to blame on low-information voter. Well, the answer is that the 2020 election cycle had just massive voter turnout. I mean, the, the, vo the, ver the voter turnout rate had the highest voter turnout of the 21st century. That 67% of citizens aged 18 and older voted in the, in the election in 2020. In 2016, the voter turnout rate was like 59%. So that is a, a much lower number. You had 59% of a voting age population of 249 million in 2016, so 60%. 
you had almost a two-thirds voter turnout rate with an increased population of 258 million who are eligible to vote. That's the answer. The answer is every election, there's a growing population in the United States. And 2020, because of all the mail-in ballots and all the, you can vote five months in advance garbage, because of that, it was the highest voter turnout rate in modern American history. Again, we have not seen a voter turnout rate that high pretty much ever, pretty much ever. Turnout as a percentage of, of eligible voters I mean, back in 1980, it was like 54%. And then it stayed in the 50s all the way up to 2004. We got 60%. Then in 2008, it was 62.5%. Back down to the 50s for 2012 and 2016. And then 67% in 2020. So that would be your answer. That's where all those extra voters came from. Mark says, hey, Ben, thanks for everything you and DW Plus do. When I was recently talking, one of my liberal friends about the Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light story, he told me conservatives are hypocrites because we told them not to be offended by a lady on a syrup bottle. And now we are offended by a lady on a beer can. How would you respond to this? Are conservatives hypocrites on this? Uh, No, because there is nothing inherently offensive about a black woman on a syrup bottle. I don't find black women offensive. There's something inherently offensive about a man pretending to be a woman. That's that's the thing. Now, I assume that we're talking now about the Aunt Jemima bottle. And the idea was that this was linked to slavery and this was linked to sort of reconstruction era imagery of black people. The point that I was making is that I'm not sure anybody who's ever actually had syrup from the Aunt Jemima bottle was thinking, man, slavery, that was a great thing. Reconstruction, that was a great thing. And if I thought that, and or anti-reconstruction rather, that was a great thing. Uh, if, if I thought that, I would also be against that bottle, but that's not what it was about. The whole point is with Bud Light, you're actually saying, yes, this is a great thing, what this man is doing. Benjamin says, hey, Ben, love the show. Proud to be an all access member. My question is regarding the 2024 election. Biden technically has yet to announce he'll actually run. I realize he will, most likely. However, let's assume he doesn't. Who do you believe would become the Democratic nominee? So Democrats have boxed themselves into the intersectional square. There's nothing they can really do here. Uh, Kamala Harris is going to be the presumptive nominee. That is particularly true because they now shifted the voting states in the Democratic primaries. I believe South Carolina now goes first, which cuts out like the Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, all white people, all the time vote. So uh, the chances that Kamala Harris ends up as the nominee are Fairly high. She has the highest name recognition. This is what the polls are showing as well. She leads the sort of replaced Biden sweepstakes. Now, you could theoretically some, see somebody like Gavin Newsom throw his hat in the ring, and presumably he'd have an advantage in California, although I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Austin says, hey, Mr. Shapiro, I have a quick question regarding modesty. I'm a young Christian man currently going to a secular college. I grew up in a family and church that put a high emphasis on modesty, both male and female. I've struggled to see where the Old and New Testament talks about this in any detail. I'm trying to determine what I believe so I can live according to this idea and lead my future family in accordance with both scriptures and morality. I was wondering if you could give me a definition of modesty, answer if it is important, and ways this can be lived in day-to-day life. Thank you for all that you do and all those you influence. I know you have helped me in several ways, including the idea that facts matter more than my feelings and to approach things from truth no matter what the stance. Okay, so the idea of modesty, the definition of modesty is dressing in a way that is not designed to elicit a sexual response. Right, that is the definition of modesty. That doesn't mean you have to dress like a from. Doesn't mean you have to dress in an old sack. You don't have to wear a burqa. What it does mean is that if you are wear, if you are dressing in a way that is deliberately sexually provocative, then that is immodest. And to pretend that all items of clothing are similar in terms of their sexual provocativeness is just silly. Now, even to use the term sexually provocative now is controversial because we are all supposed to be men and women of stone. We're supposed to pretend that you're supposed to have exactly the same response to a woman wearing a thong bikini on the beach as you would to a woman wearing a three-piece business suit or something. That's silly and stupid. And everyone knows that it's silly and stupid, which is why advertising does not feature generally women 
in business suits walking on the beach, but does very frequently featuring feature buxom women on the beach wearing thong bikinis. There's a reason for that. And, they, and when women dress like this, to pretend that they do not know that this is designed to elicit a response is, of course, incredibly silly. The entire lingerie business is designed around this exact notion. And the same thing in miniature is true of men. Women are not as visually driven by, by sort of sexual stimuli as men are. You know, as I've said before, when it comes to women and sex, men, men and sex, very different mentalities. For women, they need to know why. For men, they need to know what, uh, when and where. Those are, the, those are the big questions. And so the idea that, that women... There's a wide variety of clothing women can wear that is more sexually provocative than what a man can wear is 100% true. Of course, of course. Now, there are areas of debate here. I've had these debates with, my example, my friend, who's a very conservative Christian, Allie Beth Stuckey. Right? Allie and I have had the yoga pants debate. I've suggested that yoga pants are significantly sexually provocative to men. The reason being that women spray paint their ass very often and then assume that men are not looking at that, which, of course, is very, very stupid. And I was like, well, yeah, but they're comfortable at the gym. And so I'm not wearing it to provoke men. Yes, but that does not change whether an item of clothing is objectively more sexually provocative than another item of clothing. And th this is all, this is what, this is the conversation reasonable people would have. We're not allowed to have these conversations. Again, we're supposed to now pretend that if a woman wears a thong bikini, walks into the office, it's a job of men to like avert their eyes. A woman has, has done nothing whatsoever that elicits a response. Now, again, all of human life is meant to elicit emotional responses from other people. We're constantly doing that. We're constantly acting and saying things in ways that elicit responses from other people. We are not made of stone. But here, we're supposed to, again, pretend that the human, the most deep and abiding human instinct, the instinct of sexuality, doesn't exist in this context so that we can pretend that somehow decisions don't elicit responses or something, or that men and women are the same. Charlotte says, I live in the suburbs of Chicago. Anything that happens here strongly impacts what happens in my life. How do you think Brandon Johnson will impact Chicago now that he's mayor? Uh, he's like Lori Lightfoot, but a dude. Uh, it's, uh, he's a disaster area. And we, we've already seen this week, like rioting in the loop, people just beating the crap out of each other, people getting shot in the loop. There's like downtown Chicago, nice area of Chicago. And Brandon Johnson's like, it's like John Valjean. It's like people who are desperate. They're just looting because they're desperate. No, they're not. They're looting because it's fun to loot. And there aren't cops enough to stop them. But Brandon Johnson's like, well, but if we had midnight basketball, that might save it. Yeah, good luck, guys. You, you made this decision. Enjoy it. Dan says, I'm thinking about going into law school. I've heard the job market is oversaturated. You mentioned before you think maybe AI will eventually replace a lot of the lawyering workspace. You mentioned a long time ago you wanted to find third-year law school paper about judicial review in Marbury versus Madison. Did you ever find it? No, I tried desperately. I actually emailed my law school advisor on that paper. Uh, I, I would like to find it somewhere. I may have like a laptop going back. You know, now it'd be 15 years, but I have to dig through my garage and then send it to my friends over at Legacy Box and see if they can preserve it for me. Caroline says, I was in a conversation with two colleagues discussing school choices and how it seems ridiculous that if you choose to send your kids to a private school, you still have to pay state taxes for public school. They were saying it's a good thing because wealthy people can afford private schools. If they don't pay taxes toward those already in poor schools, those schools will never improve. Children from low-income areas and families only have public schools in their district as an option and are the only ones paying taxes toward those schools. There's a cycle of poverty and a lack of education. What do you think is an appropriate solution to solve this issue? Thanks for what you do. Um, so the idea that, that state taxes should go to public schools and that if you're in a private school, you should still continue to pay taxes and those taxes should go to public. Like, I, don't, I don't actually have a huge problem with that, you know, the, uh, again, we all have a stake in there being kids going to schools. I would prefer that this be done on the most local available level. And that instead of paying state taxes, this very often, by the way, is the way that it works. It's not all state education dollars. Very often it's local education dollars. The more local, the better. I have a very high stake in kids in my neighborhood going to school. And I'm willing to help subsidize that as a function of my local community. 
I'm not willing to do that at the national level because frankly, I don't think the federal government is good at running this thing or distributing the money. But yeah, there are obviously things in your local community where you have a stake in it, like kids going to, to your school. And really, it's not about people like me where I'm sending my own kids to school, so I'm already paying for schooling. It's about people who don't have kids in school and retirees, right? That should really be the question. Are those, should those people be subsidizing education? The general idea here is the community does have an interest in subsidizing education. And I think virtually everybody does believe that. Whether that should go to public school or whether it should go to vouchers is a different question. I think it should go to vouchers. Zach says, what authors can I trust to read about American world presidential history? Some authors like John Meacham, can I look at their Twitter feed to see if I can trust them? But what is your process for weeding out political lean in history books when it comes to older and deceased authors? God bless. So my favorite thing to read on the weekends, I love the Wall Street Journal book review section. I love it. Uh, it comes every Shabbat and coffee and the Wall Street Journal book review section is like my favorite thing. This is like my one of life's little pleasures. Uh, and so I tend to read the reviews of the books and see how it's reviewed in places like the Wall Street Journal or the New Criterion. I found reviewers that I trust. And then if they recommend the book, then I usually will give it a shot. And this is where the blurbs actually matter. Now, beware with blurbs. When fam As a person who has blurbed many a book, when famous people give blurbs to books, that doesn't necessarily mean they've read the book, which is why you should read a couple of book reviews of the book. Matt says, I don't understand all the rules for the Jewish Sabbath. Well, yeah, there are a lot of them. I understand the idea of taking a day to rest. Why don't you flip a light switch or drive a car? How's turning on the lights a violation of the Sabbath? Thank you. Okay, so here we're going to get a little abstruse. Okay, so the way that this works is that the way we define Sabbath in Jewish law is we try to figure out what you were not allowed to do in building the tabernacle. Okay, so get ready. In the book of Exodus, there's a long description of what it took to build the tabernacle. What we know is that you were not allowed to build the tabernacle. You're not allowed to wreck the tabernacle on Sabbath. So what that means is that when we are trying to figure out what exactly you can and cannot do on Sabbath, what we do is what we do, we look at the so-called 39 malachot, right? 39 activities. And those 39 activities are things that you couldn't do in building the tabernacle. And so the idea is that you're not allowed to do them when you are on a normal Sabbath, because that's the way we're learning what you can do and what you can't do when it comes to Sabbath. And the commandment to keep the Sabbath is given in Exodus. And uh, or to guard the Sabbath is given in Exodus. And so we're, we're taking the same book and we're figuring out exactly what that means. So those rules include things ranging from digging to kindling a fire. So there's a big sort of early 20th century debate about the use of electricity. Is it the equivalent of kindling a fire? Therefore, you're not allowed to actually turn on and off lights. So you can actually preset lights on the Sabbath, right? You set it before the Sabbath and it goes on and off automatically. You're not actually doing that, right? That would be one way of doing it. You can leave lights on throughout the Sabbath. You can't flip it off because that's like, putting out a fire. You're not allowed to do that on Sabbath. The other theory with regard to creating, uh, with regard to electricity is that you're not allowed to build on the Sabbath. And there's a piece of abstruse reasoning that says that this is a form of, in Hebrew, it's called bona, of building. And when you complete a circuit, that is a form of building. So that is the reason for that. When it comes to driving a car, you're actively kindling a fire. When you use an internal combustion engine, you're kindling a fire. Now, when it comes to electric cars, you run into the same issues as with the light. Is this the equivalent of either ash, right, fire, or is it the equivalent of bonet, like building a circuit? Again, Jewish law is an attempt to reify in the world what God wants of you. And it gets into really kind of nook and cranny areas of tremendous specificity. And it sounds wild, but the reality is that if you actually think that God cares about what you do, you try to suss out as best you can from the rules that are available to you how exactly to act in your, in your daily life. So that those are the reasons for that. Mike Palmer says, I watch a show just about every day. I appreciate all you do as well as others there at DW. I've been hearing the word anti-Semitic a lot in the last three years. I've noticed something strange about how it's pronounced. Everyone who uses the word seems to pronounce it anti-Semitic, but it's clearly anti-Semitic. I've even looked up the actual pronunciation, which is anti-Semitic. I've never heard anyone actually pronounce it as it's spelled. 
Now, it will bother you. I'd be very interested in hearing your thoughts. I have no idea. I have no idea. I got nothing for you. I, I, I don't know. I think the term is out of date anyway. I think we should just use the term Jew hatred. So that, that's what it is. Matt says, hey, Ben, longtime listener, love the show. My wife and I are expecting our first child in the next two weeks. Any advice for us as new parents? Uh, yeah, you should use, uh, as, as brand new parents, you should use the so-called five S's. So that would be like soothing, uh, swaddling. This is to, to calm a crying baby. Babies like to cry a lot. So this is Harvey Karp. Okay, so here, here's a quick primer. Harvey Karp is a, a doctor who figured out kind of ways to stop your baby from crying. Swaddling, put the baby on their side or their stomach while they're awake. You can't let a baby sleep on its stomach. That, that creates SIDS risk. Shushing the baby. You go to the baby's ear and go, shh. And it sounds real weird. But the reason you're doing that is that's what it actually sounds like uh, in vitro. Swinging the baby. That doesn't mean like you grab them by the feet. And like swing. It means that you like swing them side to side. They really like that. It's why babies like the baby swings. And, uh, and you give them like a pacifier. Right? They, they, that, that's, how you, that's how you see the baby. And then when they get a, a little bit older, there are all sorts of theories about how to sleep train. My wife and I are of the cry it out mentality, uh, which there, there's some people who will like go in for five minutes and go out. Oh my God, it's going to create lifelong trauma. If you let the baby cry for too long, uh, we, we disagree. Uh, the way that we've always done it is when the baby hits an age, usually it's about I don't know, six months, five months, when the baby's able to sleep train, you just let them cry it out. And, uh, and then they go to sleep and they go to sleep at a regular time. My kids have been really great sleepers ever since they were very young, specifically because of this. Alrighty, folks. So we'll be back here tomorrow with the actual Ben Shapiro show. And keep those questions coming. Go subscribe at dailywireplus.com. Become a member. You can send your question in. Maybe next week I'll be answering your questions. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.